Welcome to the PR Matters Podcast, survival tips for church communicators, hosted by Justin Dean. Get your copy of Justin's new book, PR Matters, at churchprbook.com. Welcome to the PR Matters Podcast. My name is Justin Dean, and I'm the author of PR Matters, a survival guide for church communicators. I'm so glad that you're listening, because that probably means that you're interested in helping your church gain and sustain a better reputation so you can reach more people with the gospel. Or maybe you just want to learn how to be prepared for if and when a crisis hits. Over the next 10 episodes, I'm going to take you through my book chapter by chapter. I'll also be bringing on some PR experts and guests to share their perspective. Think of this as an enhanced audiobook, but free. By the end of this series, my hope is that you will be equipped and prepared to handle any crisis that comes your way. Whether your pastor gets in trouble, a natural disaster hits, protesters show up at your church, or maybe you simply just get a negative comment on your Facebook page. I'll share the tips and strategies needed to get you noticed and reach more people, as well as what to do when something goes wrong. If you want more info, consider picking up a copy of my book at churchprbook.com. You'll also get access to a comprehensive, done-for-you crisis communications plan for your church. It's free with every book purchase. You'll also get a ton of other free perks as well. In this first episode, I'm going to read through Chapter 1, What is PR and Why Does It Matter?, as well as Chapter 2, The Mess We Are In. Chapter 1, What is PR and Why Does It Matter? Whether you like it or not, we are all in public relations. You, the lead pastor, the coordinator, your admin, the community group leader, and all of your church members. Someone somewhere once said, everything you do or say is public relations, and I couldn't agree more. I would also add that in today's world, anything you don't do and don't say is also public relations. When it comes down to it, what matters most about PR is actually not what you say, but rather what others say about you. Everything you do and don't do is perceived by someone else in a certain way. It doesn't matter so much what you meant or how you feel or what your intention was. The best marketing and advertising in the world doesn't matter if people don't understand the message. What matters most is how people perceive it and how they feel about it because of it. What gets repeated and posted on social media and told to their friends is what they think you said not necessarily what you actually said or meant. Jean-Louis Gassi, a former Apple executive, defines it this way. Advertising is saying you're good. PR is getting someone else to say you're good. And another smart man, Stuart Ewan, he said, The story of PR is a history of a battle for what is reality and how people will see and understand what is reality. The job of a public relations person is to manage perception in order to establish the best possible reputation for a person, company, or as we'll focus on in this book, a church. The reason we want to manage people's perceptions is so that we can align with reality and earn their trust. That trust leads to conversations about Jesus. It is important for you to realize that you are already in public relations, whether you want to be or not and that your church needs to have an organized strategy in place to properly manage PR. Ideally, this responsibility would fall on the plate of a public relations manager or a communications director, but someone needs to own it. The position and title can vary from church to church, 
but the important thing is that someone needs to be tasked with the responsibility of managing communications that affect the church's reputation and relationship with the public. Creating a positive perception of your church and the community provides a critical foundation for all other communication. So this is a very important role that shouldn't be overlooked or pawned off to a volunteer. If you're reading this book, chances are you are this person. That's right, I just added one more thing onto your plate that I'm sure is already overflowing. Maybe you're an admin or a coordinator, or maybe you're the lead pastor. The church world is much like a startup. Everyone's overworked, you're understaffed and under-resourced. So adding PR to your already long list of duties might seem like an unnecessary burden. But remember, as I just said, you're already doing it. It's already on your plate. Now that you're aware of it, I can help you do it better. The nice thing is you don't have to shoulder all the weight by yourself. You or someone needs to lead the strategy, but the entire process needs to be a team effort. Everyone in your church should be mindful of public relations, but leaving the decision-making and strategy to a committee or letting each manager handle his or her own communications can lead to missed opportunities at the least and a mismanaged crisis at the worst. The opportunity is too great for this not to be a focus of someone in your organization. My friend Maggie Berrigan, who currently leads up social media for Rock Church in San Diego, she said at one of our conferences, the church should be the good in the news. When someone sees a positive story in secular news or on social media about your church, that's a huge victory and a massive opportunity to reach people who need to know Jesus. The church is the hope of the world, and we need to get better at shining light on that fact. Pastor Greg Laurie, who leads Harvest Crusades and Harvest Christian Fellowship in Southern California, he said in a recent sermon, We live in a time of bad news, fake news, divisive news, and depressing news. As Christians, we need to recommit ourselves to getting the good news out. Are you actively promoting your church and the gospel message to the public? Is your church actively pursuing opportunities to be in the news? Perhaps the thought of even responding to reporters makes you fearful and and uneasy. I understand that this is scary, but the more prepared you are, the easier it gets. Missing great opportunities to expose your church to new audiences is definitely unfortunate, but the real scary part is not being prepared for when your church is faced with a negative story. Most people think of PR when a crisis hits, and frankly, by then it's too late. I often get calls from pastors and leaders at churches who are faced with their first crisis and they don't know what to do. A pastor sleeps with someone he shouldn't. Someone is accused of something that they say they didn't do. Or protesters show up on a Sunday and no one has a plan. It could be as small as a negative comment on a social media post, but left unattended can turn into a nightmare distraction. While I love that my experience has led me to be able to help churches in need, I dread those calls. I don't mind helping. In fact, I love it. But more often than not, the church on the other end of the call is not prepared, and there's not much time to do anything about it. There's only so much you can do at that point to minimize the damage and control the story. And that's what PR is all about, controlling the story. But not in the way that you may be thinking. It's about keeping the narrative in the right lane. It's about building relationships and constantly having conversations that continue to tell our story and point people to what matters, Jesus. 
We can't just do good and expect everyone to understand why or even to notice. We have to tell them that we did good and why we did it. Through relationships and conversations, we can earn people's trust and respect so they'll talk about it and help spread our message. Ultimately, we want people to understand who we truly are so that we open up more opportunities to tell the truth about Jesus. But there will be times when others will be actively trying to show that you are something else, whether it's reporters or bloggers or protesters, lawmakers and politicians, or people who have been hurt by the church. They'll try to eat away at your credibility and make it harder for you to stay on mission. It takes someone who can actively craft the message to stay within the right context amidst ever-changing situations and attacks. That person also needs to be a constantly that person also needs to constantly be building relationships because only through real conversations and mutual respect between people do perceptions begin to change. My friend Stephen Dilla has found in all of his research studying churches and people's behaviors that people convert to community before they convert to Christ. Conversations and spiritual growth happen through relationships with each other. That's the way that God designed it. People come to church because they are invited. They stick around because they become known and they start to feel like they belong. And they grow as disciples only once they believe. We don't want to control the story so that we can deceive and hide the truth from people. We want to control the story so we can make sure that the truth stays in the light. Because it's the truth that will get them to trust us, become one of us, and ultimately lead them to Christ. It can be a complex responsibility to own. There's a lot of room for abuse and mistakes. Namely, our own sinful desire to be liked and avoid conflict can tempt us to change the story or leave a part of the story out. Fear of man can tempt us to, take, to make mistakes that we'll later regret. When we do make mistakes, the best thing we can do is just own up to it, not try to hide it. PR gets a bad rap because so many politicians and people in the business world have used it to try and hide their mistakes. And frankly, this has been done at churches too. The PR team is called in to keep a story out of the news by lying and applying manipulative techniques. Maybe they highlight a better story or deflect the story onto competition. The worst part is that this works. That's why it's so easy to abuse. Churches haven't been perfect at PR either. Withholding truth and not answering questions can almost be as bad as covering something up or lying. Spinning facts in any way that makes people believe something that isn't quite the whole truth, that's just plain sinful. As Christians, we will still make mistakes, but for us, they are just another opportunity to model grace and repentance and show the world that we too are not perfect. Be honest about your mistakes and use them to strengthen the narrative, not diminish it. We aren't perfect, that's why we need a savior. That's our story, and it's the greatest story ever told. PR matters because within someone PR matters because without someone keeping the story straight, the world around us is going to keep knocking it off its track. If you don't tell your story, someone else will make one up for you. No one has an agenda to get your story straight. Only you do. In fact, most people have their own agenda and they'll do anything to make your story fit into it. That not only damages your church and your reputation, it damages the reputation of all Christians and all churches and makes it harder for everyone to point people to Jesus. PR matters because every day it is getting harder and harder for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Culture around us is becoming more and more hostile towards the gospel and biblical truths. Not only that, but even among Christians, we are seeing watered-down versions of the gospel 
all in the name of fitting in with the world so more people will like us and accept us. Biblical truths are being abandoned or manipulated in order to fill our buildings with more people. Many churches are adapting to the world around them instead of trying to lead it. PR matters because too many churches are either drowning or staying out of the water, too afraid to even dip their toes in. We must dive in, and we must wade through the cultural chaos around us, preaching the gospel at all costs. It's not enough to just passively live a good life, do good works, and hope people come to Jesus. We must boldly speak the gospel and do our best to handle persecution and backlash with as much grace and poise as possible. The world's view of Christians is getting more and more distorted and perverted every day. It's time your church takes the steps to make public relations a priority so you can communicate the gospel in the most effective and efficient way. Chapter 2. The Mess We Are In We live in a world where there is no longer any expectation of privacy and forgiveness is a thing of the past. No longer can you make a joke between friends without risk of it being overheard and your photo and quote being tweeted out, wrecking your job and your family. No longer can honest mistakes be remedied with an apology between affected parties. No, you must be publicly shamed and your story forever entombed on the internet. Even heartfelt repentance and apologies are scrutinized for their accuracy and truthfulness and never accepted by the public as good enough restitution for your sins. I was on a flight from Los Angeles to Atlanta recently, and the guy next to me kept thrusting his back into his seat. It was obvious that the teenage girl behind him was kicking his seat or pressing too hard on the back seat screen. I looked back at the poor girl, and I saw she had a full cup of soda on the seat back tray. By the third time that the man thrust his seat back, obviously annoyed with this girl, I pulled out my earbuds and I said, why don't you just ask her to stop? You're going to cause her to spill her drink. The guy looked super annoyed and just ignored me. We live in a world where people are scared or maybe too selfish to have real conversations as human beings. We'd rather be passive aggressive jerks than actually confront someone and work out our differences. I'm not even sure if the girl in the seat behind him was aware that she did anything to annoy the guy. She probably thought he was just a jerk for thrusting his seat back so often, and maybe she didn't want to start a confrontation by asking him to stop. I kept thinking about that guy on the plane and how, had I not intervened, the situa situation may have escalated in a very bad way. Today's world, it was only a matter of minutes before the girl would have posted a photo of the guy to Twitter, or the guy could have posted a photo of the girl drenched in soda with the hashtag justice or hashtag karma. Things like that happen all the time and lives are ruined for no reason. On the same flight, I had just finished John Rawson's book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. In the book, one of the many stories that Ronson shares is of a man who attended a conference for software developers. He was just an average Joe with a wife and kids. He and his buddy were sitting in a session at the tech conference. and He made a nerdy but slightly inappropriate joke. He said it to his buddy, not to a crowd and not online. It wasn't even a good joke or even a particularly crude joke. There's a bunch of nerds at a tech conference that like, what do you expect? However, a young woman, apparently one of only a few women at the conference, was sitting in front of him. She turned around, snapped a photo of the two guys, and proceeded to post the photo on Twitter, calling them out for their sexist jokes. Her tweet went viral, 
the guy was shamed online by thousands of people and was fired from his job because of her post. All because she overheard his joke, took it out of context, and was offended. She could have turned around and told them that she was offended, to which they most likely would have apologized and life would have gone on. Instead, she turned immediately to public shaming on Twitter and went a step further to include the photo. She didn't even talk to the guy. Turns out the woman eventually got fired from her job too, which she blames the guy for. To this day, it doesn't look like she has taken any responsibility for her own actions, continues to be somewhat of an activist fighting for the rights of female developers. Sure, the guy should have been careful saying jokes out loud in a public place, but nobody deserves what he and his family had to go through. Do we really want to create a world where we can't tell any joke of any kind in a public place for fear that someone might take it out of context, be offended, and then post our photo online for the world to publicly shame us? I'm also reminded of the trouble that Clorox found themselves in with a controversial tweet posted April 8, 2015. The innocent tweet caused quite an uproar for a few days and a ton of bad publicity for a brand that really did nothing wrong. The tweet was of a Clorox bottle and all of the emoji images that had just been released made up the bottle and the caption was, new emojis are all right, but where's the bleach? Apple had just released a big software update for iOS that included a lot of new emoji icons including more racially diverse faces. Before the update, you could only choose yellow-faced emoji, but now you have the choice between many different skin colors, including white, brown, and black. Someone at Clorox wanted to capitalize on a big social media news story and join the conversation by posting something that they thought would be clever and creative, and it would have been if we didn't live in such an overly sensitive world. People immediately took offense, right? Shocking and assumed that Clorox was implying the new black and brown skin tones should be bleached white. What is ludicrous considering that the emoji we had before the update were yellow, not white, and the graphic of the Clorox bottle that they posted didn't include any face emoji at all. I can understand if it was made up of nothing but black and brown faces, but it wasn't. The problem was that the majority of the news stories and conversations about the iOS update were centered around the racial diversity of the new emoji, even though there were dozens of other new icons introduced, including my favorite, the taco emoji. Clorox was focusing on the many household items that were included in the update, pointing out that a bleach bottle was not one of them. The public conversation was focused on the new skin tones, though, so that's where people's minds went when they first read the tweet. Either Clorox was paying attention to the news stories and thought this wouldn't really be an issue, so long as they were careful to not include face emoji in the graphic, which they did, or they weren't paying close enough attention to the public conversation before trying to capitalize on it. At the end of the day, they could have used better judgment, but they didn't do anything wrong. I'm willing to bet it didn't even cross their minds that it would be an issue, yet people immediately claimed that they were racist and insensitive. Ban Clorox Facebook groups popped up. Hundreds of thousands of tweets were posted within hours, all negative about Clorox. It was clever and fun, and it should have been a big marketing success. You would think that reasonable people would see the innocence of their tweet and move on. But people love a good fight, especially if a bunch of nobodies can take down a big brand. 
and especially if you can make race the center of the issue. You never know how the public is going to respond, nor can you predict what they'll get offended at next. Clorox quickly deleted their tweet and posted another one, apologizing for the confusion. It said, Wish we could bleach away our last tweet. Didn't mean to offend. It was meant to be all about the toilet, bathtub, and red wine emojis that could use a cleanup. They also put out a press release saying, We apologize to the many people who thought our tweet about the new emojis was insensitive. It was never our intention to offend. We did not mean for this to be taken as a specific reference to the diversity emojis, but we should have been more aware of the news around this. The tweet was meant to be a light-hearted, was meant to be light-hearted, but it fell flat. It was just an honest mistake. They apologized quickly. Life should have moved on, right? And it, it did eventually. Clorox isn't going anywhere. But this was a big hit. A smaller company would have buckled under this kind of pressure. I don't know if anyone got fired for this, but they certainly have in similar situations. I don't know what the financial impact of this mistake was. Probably minimal in the long run. At the end of the day, this certainly was not the type of publicity that Clorox intended to get out of the tweet. Stories like this are happening more often. Instead of us correcting this insane behavior, we put up with it, even promote it and encourage it. Half the people reading this probably disagree with me and still think Clorox was in the wrong. That's disappointing to me on so many levels. But the biggest disappointment from this is that Clorox has yet to post anything that clever in the past two years. They went back to being bland. Situations like this force all of us, people and brands, to become ultra-private, sensitive, and scared. It stifles creativity and boldness. We can neither be too liberal nor too conservative. We must be perfect and flawless, never taking chances that could show us intolerant of anything. Not that anyone can keep up with what we're supposed to be tolerant of or not from week to week. In John Ronson's book, he says, We have created a world where the smartest way to survive is to be bland. This is how the world is these days. But it's worse for Christians. We live in a world where a Christian bakery owner can't refuse to bake a wedding cake for a gay wedding, but a gay bakery owner can refuse to make a cake with scripture on it. We live in a world where everything and anything is now tolerated, except being a Bible-believing Christian. We are constantly being shamed, constantly losing our rights, and every day it is getting harder and harder to share biblical truths without severe repercussions. I can't think of any other religion or viewpoint that is more unaccepted in today's world. In a world where you can be whoever and whatever you want to be, being a Christian is becoming the exception. The world wants Christians to be bland, but I say to hell with that. See what I did there? When Christian media and bloggers start picking on churches and pastors, publishing unsubstantiated rumors and misinformation and participating in the shaming of someone who has made a mistake or sinned, even after they repent and apologize, then it's not the time to be bland or tolerant. We can't let the world dictate what we do or say. It's time to be bolder than we have ever been. It's time to stand up for the church, stand up for the Bible, and stand up for Jesus. The church should be setting the culture, not adapting to it. Using the Bible and the Holy Spirit as our guide, we should be leading the way with what to believe and how to act. But too often we're trying too hard to stay relevant and not offend anyone. I'm not saying we shouldn't we should get a pass to say and do whatever we want. Nor am I saying we shouldn't carefully craft our messages and pay attention to the conversation around us, 
because we should. I'm saying we need to stand up to a world that wants us to run away scared. We need to stand up for what's right. This shouldn't be a shock. We knew this would happen. Being persecuted for being a Christian shouldn't surprise anyone who's read their Bible. Matthew 10.22 And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The truth is, they don't want us to just be bland. Being bland is not enough. The world isn't going to stop there. If you think you can go about life just being perfect, never making a joke in public, never making a mistake, and never saying anything ever that could be taken out of context, you're kidding yourself. It's not possible. You can't wait for things to blow over or for a better president to be elected. It will continue to get worse. That's a promise. If you think you can operate under the radar and just play it safe, then shame on you. That's not what God has called us to do. If you haven't read Mark Driscoll's book, A Call to Resurgence, please pick it up. It was published amidst the closing of our church, and it didn't get the recognition it deserves. Had more church leaders actually read it, I'm convinced the church wouldn't be in bit as wouldn't be in as big of a mess. In the book, Pastor Mark says, With the epic rise of borrowed faith, lost faith, and no faith, what's left of actual Christian faith? The present-day blends of beliefs, traditions, and spiritualities makes it difficult to identify a remnant, especially when all of the ingredients have been marinated in the brine of American civil religion and Judeo-Christian ethics. Everything comes out of the mix with a hint of Christianity and vice versa. He goes on, Many Christians of the borrowed or lost faith variety have gladly accepted society's new vision for the church. Since when does society dictate the church's vision? In many of these congregations, the church favors showing the gospel and abandons speaking the gospel altogether. The problem is, the gospel cannot be shown. It must be spoken. Love, grace, mercy, justice, and the like can be shown with works. The gospel of Jesus Christ, however, must be spoken with words, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about our deeds, but rather Jesus' deeds, his sinful life, substitutionary death, burial, and bodily resurrection for the salvation of sinners. There's so much more I could keep quoting, or you can pick up a copy of his book. The point is, the church has gone soft. Christian faith has lost any market share it had. It's hard to even tell who the real Christians are anymore. In today's world, it is increasingly difficult to share a clear gospel message or even articulate what we believe. We aren't safe. We never will be. Our only option is to continue sharing the gospel, spreading the good news as far and wide as we can go amidst whatever circumstances and scenarios that come our way. Stay focused on telling the world about Jesus. Try new things to grow your church and reach new people. Take risks. Be Clorox. Operate within boundaries and be responsibility. That's where a good PR plan comes into play. But don't be scared just because we live in a fallen world that doesn't understand us and quite frankly is out to get us. The most common problem facing the church right now is fear. Fear of losing people. Fear of negative comments on social media. Fear of protests over our beliefs. Fear that if we actually preach the gospel, we'll lose our nonprofit status or lose our donors or we'll be mocked and ridiculed. That fear has paralyzed the church. But God tells us, fear not. In the Bible, it actually appears roughly 150 times. He doesn't tell us this because he knows it's going to get easier. 
It's not going to get easier. He tells us not to fear because he is with us. The Jesus who has experienced everything we're going through and more is with us and will never forsake us. So wake up, church. It's time to get to work. This is why having someone focused on communications can help. This is why PR matters. You need someone who can help set the boundaries. A good communications person is constantly analyzing trends in the world and how best to manage your message in a fickle tide of morals and political correctness. A good communications person would know what the conversation is about before entering it. Mistakes will happen and sin will enter the process, but that same communications person can help communicate repentance and restitution when necessary. The key is to take control of your message at all times. Again, not to spin it or manipulate it, but to make sure people are getting it right. Your goal as a PR person is to make sure the gospel is actually being spoken, that your church stays true to its vision and mission to save the world, and to ensure that the vision and mission doesn't get distorted into only doing good deeds so that you can better fit into the world around you. Your good deeds shouldn't make you fit in. They should set you apart and point people to the gospel. More important than promoting your latest fast food, your latest food drive or your attendance numbers at Easter is showing the world that you too are a house full of sinners in need of grace. We need to show the world that we can take risks and be bold. And when we make mistakes, we repent and we make them right. But it doesn't change the story that we're trying to tell. Everything we do should point people to the gospel. Otherwise, what's the point? Jesus didn't command us to go out into the world and be perfect. He certainly didn't call us to not offend anyone. He told us to worship him and love one another. He told us to tell people about him, a man so controversial that we killed him, only for him to raise from the dead and free us from our sins. It's your job to tell that story and to tell that story well, over and over again, no matter what. Are you prepared? Listen for the next episode as I'll talk more about the traits of a successful PR person and we'll start getting into how to create a PR plan for your church. If you want to pick up a copy of the book, which includes a comprehensive, done-for-you crisis communications plan, go to churchprbook.com. Thanks again for listening.